So I remember when I was making the move from Auckland back down to Hamilton when I'd finished my church placement at Mount Albert Baptist during my studies. So it was the end of the year, well I mean the end of the uni year, so like early November, and I was quite ready to be moving home. Mount Albert Baptist had been awesome for me, but for the last year of my studies I wasn't going to be able to get the experience there that I was looking for, so I decided to return home to Ham South. How lucky were you guys? <laughs> but making that decision to come back to Ham South it took a lot of time. I spent a lot of weeks weighing up the pros and cons of each option and deciding which one I wanted to go for. I spent obviously a lot of time asking God, what should I do? And he said, it's up to you. And so that was really helpful. But in the end, I made my decision, but along with making that decision, there was plenty else going on. I was finishing up my classes for the year, which meant I had final assignments to complete. Um, in my free time, I was working a lot at Bunnings, getting some shifts in there. I attended the Baptist Hui around that time as well as a student helper representing Kerry. And I was packing up my stuff, I was saying goodbye to friends, I was saying goodbye to the lovely family that I was living with. So it all became a very busy few weeks tacked onto the end of a very busy year of studying anyway. But I made it home, which was nice. It was nice to get home, but more technically I should probably say that my stuff made it home because two days after arriving home I went off to Sydney with a friend for a little holiday and I mean that was great fun but as soon as I got off the plane from Sydney I went to another friend's house and we got in the car and went down to the sunny Hawke's Bay for another friend's wedding which we were bridesmaids in and so in total my homecoming process, it took maybe six weeks from start to finish in terms of making the decision and then actually getting home. And I mean, by the end of it, I was feeling quite deflated. The homecoming had really taken it out of me. It was like all of the air had been let out of me and all I wanted to do was just stay now and enjoy my home comforts. I mean, in that time, Josh would even try to make plans with me, like, oh, come over for dinner. Nothing fancy, but even that, I was like, oh, I'd just rather stay at home. And so my homecoming was not quite what I expected it would be. As you can imagine, earlier in the year, as I was looking upon this finish to the year, I was quite excited. I mean, I got to go away for the hui with a bunch of friends. I got to go to Sydney with a friend on a holiday. I got to be a part of another friend's wedding, which was really special down in the Hawke's Bay. But by the time I got to that time, by the time I got to the end of the year, I just wasn't excited about any of it. Everything felt like it was just hard, like it was going to take too much effort and at the time I just wanted to sit back and do nothing. My great homecoming, it didn't really feel like the homecoming I'd imagined because it felt like home leaving just over and over again for all these different things. But when I look back on it now, I do really remember how I felt in that time. But more strongly than that, what I remember is how much I enjoyed and appreciated what I got to do and how much I appreciated being with good friends at that time, even though being with them sometimes felt a little bit hard. 
And I wonder if maybe you've had a similar experience when you've had a big homecoming, something much anticipated, that hasn't really played out how you thought it would in the end. I know a few guys who know that experience well, and that is Ezra and Nehemiah, whose story we're looking at today. And so we're going to look at the, this particular theme of homecoming, which appears in these books, and see what happened for them. So let us just pray as we begin this morning. Father God, as always, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are so good and that you make provisions during times where everything else seems so uncertain. Father, you are so constant, so steady. Lord God, we thank you that you are with us and that we can worship you in this way. Lord, as we read your scripture, would you speak to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So as you may remember from last week, Ezra and Nehemiah had each been charged by God to return to Judea, to the city of Jerusalem, leave Babylon, where they'd been in exile, and rebuild the temple and the city walls and re-establish the Israelites' Jewish identity. So Ezra was charged with reteaching the law to the people of Israel and leading them in re-establishing some of their Jewish practices that they had neglected for a wee while. And Nehemiah, he was later charged to rebuild the city walls. And while Jerus uh, sorry, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem some 60 years before Nehemiah, it wasn't until Nehemiah had completed the rebuilding of the city walls that he called on Ezra to come and teach the law to the people. So this morning we're gonna jump into the story at Nehemiah chapter nine. So what's happening in this passage is that Nehemiah and, the, and his crew, they have completed the rebuilding of the city walls and they have all gathered together now to hear the law read by Ezra. So after hearing the law, having the law read to them and after having it explained to them by Ezra and the Levites, the Levites were the ones who worked in the temple, the people decided that they would celebrate the Festival of Booths, which was one of the Jewish festivals, and the law recommended that they do this in this particular month. So they went ahead and they celebrated this Festival of Booths. Ezra read the law to them again every day of that festival, and I imagine they had a good time. And then a week or two later, the people decided to gather together again, but this time it wasn't such a fun celebration. They dressed themselves in burlap, they put dust on their heads, and they spent time confessing their sins and the sins of their ancestors to God. The law was read again, this time for three hours while they all stood there dressed like this. And then the Levites led the people in a prayer. And it's one that takes up almost all of chapter 9. So it's quite long, and we're going to look at it today, but I'm going to break it down a little bit for us. So we're going to start at verse 5. May your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve them all and the angels of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him from Ur of the Chaldeans and renamed him Abraham. 
when he had proved himself faithful, you made a covenant with him to give him and his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezerites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. And you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. The prayer led by the Levites, it began at the beginning of the story of the Israelites. When God established his covenant with Abraham and promised him and his descendants land that would become their home. This prayer begins by reminding the Israelites where they have come from. And the Israelites, they didn't really come from much. Their beginning was found in a man and his wife, in Abram and Sarai, a couple who couldn't even have children. Yet God chose them, named them Abraham and Sarah, and promised them that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he delivered to them then a son who they named Isaac. And that was when Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham was 100. And God chose this line, the line that descended from Abraham to be his people, his people that he would be faithful to, walking with them and leading them towards the land that he had promised them. The Israelites, they didn't come from much, but they were God's chosen people. They were children of God and God had promised them a place to call their home. Now we'll continue from verse 9. I, I need to mark it. You saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt and you heard their cries from beside the Red Sea. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, his officials and all his people for you knew how arrogantly they were treating our ancestors. You have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. You divided the sea for your people so they could walk through on dry land. And then you hurled their enemies into the depths of the sea. They sank like stones beneath the mighty waters. You led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so that they could find their way. You came down at Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and instructions that were just and decrees and commands that were good. You instructed them concerning your holy Sabbath and you commanded them through Moses your servant to obey all of your commands, decrees and instructions. You gave them bread from heaven when they were hungry and water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn to give them. But our ancestors were proud and stubborn and they paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to lead them back into their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. Even when they made an idol shaped like a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, they committed terrible blasphemies. But in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud still led them by day and 
the fire showed them the way through the night. You sent your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not stop giving them manna from heaven or water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. The prayer continues and they remember the time where the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and the miraculous works that God performed in order for his people to be freed and to continue towards the home he promised. They remembered God's faithfulness, that he is a God of forgiveness, graciousness and mercy, who was slow to anger and rich and unfailing love, who dealt with them justly and walked with them faithfully through the wilderness, providing cloud and fire to lead them on towards what was promised. God sustained the Israelites throughout their 40-year journey through the wilderness. He provided manna from heaven for them so they weren't hungry and water from the rock so that they would not thirst. He ensured that their clothes didn't wear out and that their feet didn't swell so that they could continue on towards the promised land. Despite their pride and their stubbornness and their blasphemy, God called them so God sustained them. We'll continue reading now from verse 23. You made their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and brought them into the land you had promised to their ancestors. They went in and took possession of the land. You subdued whole nations before them. Even the Canaanites who inhabited the land were powerless. Your people could deal with these nations and their kings as they pleased. Our ancestors captured fortified cities and fertile, fertile land. They took over houses full of good things with cisterns already dug and vineyards with, and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate until they were full and grew fat and enjoyed themselves in all your blessings. But despite all this, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them to return to you. And they committed terrible blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who made them suffer. But in their time of trouble, they cried to you and you heard them from heaven. In your great mercy, you sent them liberators who rescued them from their enemies. But as soon as they were at peace, your people again committed evil in your sight. And once more you let their enemies conquer them. Yet whenever your people turned and cried to you again for help, you listened once more from heaven. In your wonderful mercy, you rescued them many times. You warned them to return to your law, and, but they became proud and obstinate and disobeyed your commands. They did not follow your regulations by which people will find life only if they obey. They stubbornly turned their backs on you and refused to listen. In your love you were patient with them for many years. You sent your spirit who warned them through the prophecies, but they still wouldn't listen. So once again you allowed the peoples of the land to conquer them. 
but in your great mercy you did not destroy them or completely abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. The Levites' prayer reminded the Israelites of their own fickle commitment and their patterns of misbehaviour and turning their backs on God as soon as they got on track. Yet God never once turned his back on them. He disciplined them with love, always acting justly towards them. God constantly pointed the Israelites back toward himself, steering their focus back to him back to the commandments and back to the law that he had given them, yet the Israelites just couldn't seem to listen. But the prayer reminds them they had been chosen by an incredibly merciful God and whenever Israel found themselves up against it or in a mess of their own making, when they turned back to God and helplessly called upon his name, God heard their cries and he rescued them many, many times over. Though the Israelites countlessly abandoned their God, their God never abandoned them. The prayer finishes in verse 32. And now our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, do not let all the hardships we have suffered seem insignificant to you. The Levites led the Israelites in once again crying out to God and asking for his mercy. Their history had proven that God hears their cries and that he responds justly towards them. So they call upon his name once more and ask that he remembers their suffering and that he continues to remain faithful to them as he has done throughout all of their years. You may remember last week from the story that for Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, their homecoming wasn't as magnificent or as easy as they thought it might be. They faced great opposition. Things took way longer than they thought it would. Some people just weren't that interested or committed and those that were were just distraught when things didn't occur exactly like they thought it was. Like it thought, they thought it would. The homecoming, it was long and it was complicated. But if this brief rundown of the Israelites' history that's given in Nehemiah 9 gives us anything to go off, if it teaches us any lesson, it sounds like homecoming for the Israelites was never something simple. The Israelites were awful at times, yet through all of those years of mess and corruption and disobedience, God continued to call them. God continued to sustain them and God never once turned his back on them. And that's got me thinking that their homecoming to Judea and to the city of Jerusalem that we've read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, it wasn't just about the people returning to their land, but it was about them returning once more to their God. And then that makes their whole journey, their whole history, a bunch of homecomings over and over again. God eagerly called his people back to himself. 
to their God, to their true home. Last week we talked about how different life might be on the other side of this pandemic and I asked you to pray and to seek God to see where he is leading us in this next season. This discussion that we've had of course focuses heavily on the future. It looks to a time where things might be a little more like normal and it asks what we will do when we get there. But I don't want to, for a second, diminish or dismiss this time that we have spent in lockdown as we've been spread apart across the city. Because whilst we look forward to a homecoming, to when we can once again gather together in our church building, there has already been a homecoming throughout all of Hamilton over these last six weeks. Because being in our building isn't what makes us ham self and being together on a Sunday isn't the only time that we are a church. Thanks to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we carry God's presence with us wherever we are, making church and making home with God a very movable and dynamic thing. So in the last six weeks, churches come home to Wingate Street. Churches come home to McDonald Road. Churches come home to Mahui Street. Churches come home to Collins Road. And it's come home to Deanwell Ave. And churches come home to Acacia Cres. And church has come home to McMurdo Ave. And churches come home to Cleveland Street. Churches come home to Dixon Road. And churches come home to Rawlings Street. Church has come home to Lake Cres. And this is to just name a few. Church has also come home to so many other places. So let's please not get hung up on what a return to normal or a return to regular. Because the experiences that we've gained whilst church has been spread have really been invaluable. And if Israel's history teaches us anything, it can teach us that a much-anticipated homecoming doesn't often live up to the hype anyway. 131 Ohelpo Road isn't the church. We, God's people, are the church. And just as God called his people together through Abraham, at this time he still calls us together as the body of himself. And just as God sustained his people through whatever their days brought, he is sustaining the body of himself through whatever our days will bring. And just as God never turned his back on his people, he has not turned his back on us as the body of himself. The homecoming has already begun. Church has come home and is still coming home. God has not forgotten us. I wonder where you have seen him working along the way. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, more than ever we thank you that you are with us. When we can't be with each other, Lord, we thank you that your presence is a constant in our lives, that your spirit is always with us and always moving and alive within us too. Lord God, as we continue to navigate what these days and weeks look like in a setting that we've never experienced before, Lord, would we draw so close to you? 
Father, open our eyes to all of the amazing things that you're doing in our homes, on our streets, in our neighborhoods. Lord, help us to be bold and to pray for people and to talk to neighbors and to spend time with you and the shamed. God, we thank you so much that you are already in these places, that your presence is already working. God, there are opportunities out there for us to get involved in, so open our eyes to where they are. Father God, we pray that this time of lockdown, this time where we've been in our homes and in our immediate neighborhoods only, God, would that so enrich what church looks like when we come out of this, God? Let us not lose what we have discovered and what we have experienced in this time, Father. Help us to use it to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.